Thank you, Patrick, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I trust the prayer of all of us is that that life, that peace, that truth may be ours in vivid reality and that we might know and have confidence in that life uh, this morning. Uh, I do uh, hope that you have your Bible still open in front of you. It was page uh, 1089 in the Church Bible. I suppose one of the reasons that we can trust that the Bible does not play tricks with us is its sheer honesty in talking about its main characters. We are told that Abraham told porky pies. We are told that David was a murderer. We are told that Peter, one of the chief disciples, denied his Lord three times. And we're told that another disciple, Thomas, was a doubter. It's the evening of the first Easter Sunday, and Jesus' disciples are huddled together in a locked room. They're in despair. They had left everything to follow Jesus, hadn't they? But now he's dead. They're frightened. The same people who had killed their master would surely come after them. That's the reason the door is locked, for fear of the Jews. They're confused. Where where, where are they supposed to go? What are they to do? Into that dejected company steps Jesus. The grave could not hold him back. Surely a locked door can't keep him out. And there he is, standing right in front of them. They have been trembling with fear, but Jesus says, peace be with you. They had felt lonely and afraid, but he breathes on them, saying, receive the Holy Spirit. They had come together in secret, but now he sends them out into a needy world. As the Father sent me, So I send you. But there had been one absentee, hadn't there, in that wonderful meeting between Jesus and his disciples. Thomas, for some reason, had been missing from that memorable encounter. The other disciples keep telling Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord, but he's having none of it. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And so we come face to face with Thomas the doubter. Particular verses 24 and 25. We call him Doubting Thomas, and not only for this reason recorded here. We meet Thomas on two earlier occasions in John's Gospel. The first is in chapter 11. Lazarus is critically ill. Jesus announces his his intention to go and see Lazarus. The disciples realise that for him to do this would take him straight back to the very people 
who were plotting to kill Jesus. So Thomas gloomily says to the others, well, yes, let's go with him, and we can die with him, can't we? Our second meeting with Thomas is in chapter 14. Jesus has been explaining that he must go to his father's house. But then he will come back and take his disciples to be with him. You know the way to the place where I'm going, he tells them. And Thomas blurts out, we don't even know where you're going, so how can we possibly know the way there? A bit of a pessimist then, Thomas. Someone whose cup is always half empty rather than half full. Someone whose football team is always destined for relegation, never promotion. Someone for whom the light at the end of the tunnel is not a sign of hope, but an out-of-control express train. Do you know people like that? Are you a person like that? But Thomas, you see, was not the first to be a doubter, and neither was he the last. Indeed, over the years, you know, doubt has sometimes been elevated to the status of a virtue. The poet Tennyson spoke for many when he wrote, There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. And so did the philosopher Bertrand Russell. It's the stupid, he said, who are sure, and the intelligent are full of doubt. And even Christian minds, good Christian minds, can be infected with the same love of systemic doubt. One recent Christian writer has put it like this. He urges his fellow Christians to drop any affair you may have with certainty, proof, argument, and replace it with dialogue, conversation, intrigue, and search. Pardon me? Let's be quite clear that doubt itself is neither by itself good or bad. It depends what you're doubting in and what your doubts are about. Doubt is sometimes highly desirable. If we believed every story we heard about tooth fairies, Father Christmas, and alien inductions, abductions even, we would soon lose our sanity. If we were taken in by very every promise made by some advertisers, politicians, and religious leaders, we would then soon lose all our money as well. But on the other hand, it's neither sensible nor necessary to doubt everything. I need to know if I can believe my bank statement when I read it. I need to know if I can trust my wife to be faithful to me. I do, by the way. I need to know if the witness of the Bible to Jesus Christ is credible or whether it's just a piece of pious fiction. There is a place, then, for confident knowledge. I think that the late John Stott hit the nail on the head when he said, the corridors of the New Testament reverberate with dogmatic assertions, beginning, we know 
We are sure. We are confident. If you question this, says Stott, read the first epistle of John, in which verbs meaning to know occur about 40 times. And they strike a note of joyful assurance, concludes Stott, which is sadly missing from many parts of the church today and which needs to be recaptured. Doubt, then, has a place, but so does firm conviction. We sometimes contrast, don't we, honest doubt with blind faith. But don't forget that there's also such a thing as blind doubt and honest faith. And there's good news for doubting Thomases. For Thomas had an encounter with the living Christ and he would never be the same again. So let's move now from doubting Thomas to believing Thomas, in particular verses 26 to 29 of our passage this morning. It's one week later. The disciples are assembled to gain, uh, again, but Thomas is there this time. Although the, docks, uh, the, the doors are again locked, the same Jesus stands among them once more. And now he speaks directly to Thomas. I'd like you to notice, please, in verse 27, the precise correspondence between Thomas's doubts and the evidence that Jesus now offers him. Thomas had said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands. Jesus says, see my hands. Thomas has said, and put my finger where the nails were. Jesus says, put your finger here. Thomas said, and put, my, and, uh, uh, and put my hand in his side. Jesus says to him, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Thomas had said, I will not believe it. Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. And that's enough for Thomas. His astonished reaction, so well caught, I think, by Patrick when he read the lesson, is, my Lord and my God. No sooner had he saw than he believed, and no, no sooner had he believed than he worshipped. Have you noticed what our Lord says next to Thomas in verse 29? Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed, says Jesus, are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There is grace, wonderful grace, in seeing and believing Still more blessed, says Jesus, to not see and yet believe. Jesus graciously condescends to meet the conditions that Thomas had laid down, but at the same time pronounces a blessing on those who have faith, 
even though they have not seen for themselves. I would like to stress that Jesus is not commending faith without evidence. Faith without evidence belongs to the world of Alice in Wonderland, where it's possible to believe six impossible things before breakfast. No, Jesus is not commending faith without evidence. He is commending faith without sight. Think about it. If we only believed and acted on those things we could see for ourselves, life would be impossible. I presume that we all believe that the world is round. But how do we know that? The ancients had guessed it. Early scientists worked out that it must be so. But did you know that it wasn't until 1966 that anyone actually saw for themselves the curvature of the earth? And that's just one of a multitude of things that we believe on the credible testimony of others. If everyone insisted, as Thomas insisted, on seeing and touching the risen Christ for themselves, there would be not a single follower of Jesus today because he appeared for 40 days and then, with the single exception of the Apostle Paul, vanished from sight. There are mil- and yet there are millions of people who know and follow Jesus today. They have not had the opportunity to see his pierced hands or touch his wounded side. But they believe because of the testimony of those who did and on the testimony of those who have and who can testify to the risen Christ alive today. And Jesus calls them blessed, still more blessed than Thomas himself. The Apostle Peter would later on put this very beautifully in his first letter. Though you have not seen him, he says about Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Coming now back to John and our chapter, we see that John closes this chapter with a message for all his readers. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may may have life in his name. So you see, the whole purpose of John's gospel was that we, like Thomas, might move from evidence to faith, and from faith to life. So let me ask you this morning as I close, are you still a doubter, like to- as Thomas had been? Or are you perhaps a semi-believer, like the one who once said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Well, take your honest doubts to Jesus, and you will find that he will deal just as wisely and gently with you as he dealt with Thomas. And you will find, as Thomas found, that a doubter insisting, unless I see the nail marks 
in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Becomes a believer exclaiming, my Lord and my God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are before you this morning, perhaps on a whole range, on a whole spectrum, from utter disbelief to joyful trust. Whoever we are and wherever we are on that spectrum, be gracious to us. Open our minds to see honestly the credible evidence that is before us concerning your reality, your truth, your resurrection, your life, the good news that you bring. Open our hearts to receive that truth and open our lives to live according to that truth until our lives end. Amen.